Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As always, I'm Alex Roy, here with my friends um, for a serious episode. We start with Kirsten Korosek of TechCrunch. Hello, Kirsten. Hello. And uh, Edward Niedemeyer. Uh, hello, Edward. Hi, Alex. And in this episode, um, Kirsten and I are going to um, play it serious and we're going to discuss Ed Niedermeyer's new book, Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And we've decided to bring our A game because it's, um, it's a serious topic it's a, and it's a real book. I take offense that you don't think I bring my A game to every episode. <laughs> I know you do, but this time, I, I'll speak for myself. I actually read the book. Uh, and I don't always come as prepared to every episode as I did this time. I'm, I'm, I for one am honored, Alex. Thank you, uh, Kirsten. You always bring your A game. We know, right? And all future <laughs> guests should just ignore that last statement because obviously we always come prepared. Oh. Yeah. All right. I'd like to just clear the deck before Kirsten asks the first question. Edward Niedermeyer, um, do you have currently, or have you ever had? A position in Tesla stock, long or short? <laughs> no, I never have. Um, that's, I, that's the answer. That yeah, and no point. Okay, and and a second half of that question is: Are you have you current have you recently or have you ever received any form of financial payment from anyone that might uh, have affected your reporting one way or the other, uh, at, specific to Tesla? No, I mean no. No, I, I did not. And, and we can talk more about, about why I got pulled into this story. I read about it in the book, actually. We'll get how, how I got pulled into this story. But yeah, my, no, my motivations, like the, the crazy thing for me about Tesla is that everyone seems to think that you have to have a financial motivation to, to be really interested in this story. And a lot of people do because of the stock, uh, both long and short. But the, the crazy part to me is that it's just the most interesting and, and arguably the most important story in the world of cars. Like why, why wouldn't someone in my position be really interested in this story and pay a lot of attention to it? Well, then let's hand it off to Kirsten, who's the most credible of the three of us three <laughs> to ask some real reporting questions. Oh, about okay, this. good. Well, I'll put my journalism hat on. Uh, actually, before we do that, Ed, uh, I think we should just let everyone know that the book is now uh, upon the release of this episode is the book is now released. It was released August 20th. Yep. And um, as far as I know, it's available in you know your local bookstore and on Amazon. And are you going to be doing this? Is this what of- you're like with your journalism hat on? <laughs> no. I said before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, right. yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazon, I, apparently just about every bookseller... Um, of a serious size, they can at least order it for you. So um, shouldn't be too hard to find. Right. So people can buy it to burn it or buy it to read it. Yeah. Um, all right. So here's my first question. And it gets to the root of being a reporter. And my the biggest thing that hit me while I was reading the book, besides the fact that it's um, lots of financials, it reads more like a business reporter wrote it um, I kind of went into it thinking it was going to be like specifically about manufacturing, but it actually is a lot broader than that. The other thing that hit me is that the frequent use um, and reliance on sources who are not named. Um, and these are on record comments. So they're oftentimes in quotes, but the person's not named or a pseudonym is given to them. 
And this can be really problematic. Um, it's usually, it raises, it always raises a red flag. And it, but yet it is used sometimes. And I have used it. And there are specific reasons and cases for it. But I want to hear from you. What, first of all, how many sources did you actually speak to on the record um, for the book? Um, well, so on the record, but without attribution? Sure. Yeah. Um, I probably about, about 40. Okay. So 40 on the record without attribution. And then how many were on the record and were, had attribution to them? Um, (laughs) there were a couple of people who, who said they were willing to go on the record, um, you know, with their name. Um, but for, it, we I decided to I made a conscious choice to to have the whole book be um sort of without name sources um and it, there was a couple reasons for that and I guess that gets to your question so I'll just I'll just answer it um basically uh, I I a like one of the I, I mentioned at the very beginning of the book that this was like the hardest project I've ever worked on which may not be like particularly like might not mean anything to most people but um. It really was. And one of the things that made it so hard was that, um, you know, I decided to write this uh, about two weeks before Tesla wrote a blog post about me um, saying that I make stories up and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm implying that I am short the stock or I work, you know, for people showing the stock. So it was very difficult once they've done that to get people to talk to me um, at all like on the record, off the record, with attribution, without anything. Like people just, it was just, you know, when you get labeled with that um, by, you know, someone with the, our company with the kind of influence that Tesla has, um, particularly their employees are, are just not, they're going to, that's like a red flag, right? They're like, stay away from this guy. To remind people, this was the blog post that you're talking about was in June of 2016. That's right. Yeah. It's called a grain of salt. Um, and it had to do with the whole story. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was, there was this sort of issue going into it. Um, but I think the, the, the real thing was there was a couple things, right? So, so one, there was that, you know, and, and actually there were some, some, some anecdotes, um, that didn't, that I had in sort of my final draft that got cut by lawyers, um, because they couldn't be corroborated. So, I mean, so first of all, like, I think the first part of this is, is, you know, there was extensive reviewing, right? So, I mean, I had reviews with multiple editors. Um, we had a fact-checking review, and then we had a legal review. So it was basically about sort of four formal layers of review that this went through um, of, of people other than myself. So, um, and then also, you know, it was read by the publisher, you know, the, the guy who runs the publisher. I mean, it was, it was been read by a lot of people, but there was four formal levels of review. And, and I was okay with that because... I I sort of from the get go did not build the book around anecdotes, um, in part because anecdotes anecdotes are are this double edged sword, right? Because they're really powerful, right? And they're engaging. Those are the two things that, as a writer, you you want. You want something that really, you know, just illustrates that point, but also really sucks the reader in. And I think it was the sucking the reader in part that I think I felt like I, I wanted them the most because. With Tesla, with this story in particular, but I guess with any story, you know, anecdotes are only one instance, and and there are all kinds of potential factors with the reliability of that witness, the circumstances, the context. You know, might not have all been in that story when it was told to me. Um, so any anecdote is going to be again, it's it's really powerful, 
um, but also fundamentally problematic. And, and what was really important to me was not to find the best stories. From a, a storytelling perspective, uh, I think the book arguably could be a lot better because, you know, if I'd emphasized that and I'd really focused on that. But to me, the really important thing that I was, I was trying to accomplish with the book was, was to really show patterns, broader patterns over time. And that's why I was comfortable talking to lots of sources um, and, and not necessarily using their names is because I was looking for corroboration, not just corroboration of one episode or one anecdote, but over, about patterns of behavior over time. And what was really what I was able to do is talk to, for example, on the manufacturing side, talk to people you know, at the earliest days of Roadster manufacturing through the Model S, through the Model X, into the Model 3, and, and, and see, and everyone would tell me the same things, like the same patterns of behavior were there throughout. And I think even in general with this book, um, you know, there, is, there is new stuff in it. But I think my hope is, is that even the stuff that's not new in there is interesting because sometimes when you see, a, when you see a, 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 an anecdote or a, a story or a set of circumstances that you've, you've seen before, but it's been presented a certain way, and then when you see it sort of contextualized and, and presented as part of a, a broader uh, narrative that's one that you haven't seen, sort of how you see that, that situation can, can be very different. And so the, the real goal of this was to not just like sort of be sport hunting the juiciest anecdotes possible. I think there are other – and I don't mean to say that in a derogatory term. I think there are actually – I know there are people who are better reporters than me who are working on books about Tesla. And frankly, part of it was I didn't want to compete with them. Uh, Tim Higgins, if you're out there, I can't wait to read your book. It's going to be amazing. And you know, Tim's book is going to have amazing anecdotes. I know it because his reporting already has that. And and But to cut you off here, anecdotes are one thing. That's like someone giving the sense of how things are. And then there are the tips that you might get that will lead to hopefully finding some sort of evidence to back it up. And both of them require even though you have said that there is these all these layers of review, the most important review and the toughest one for any journalist is their review. Yeah. Meaning the gut check that happens, even when you're excited about a story, the gut check that happens and then is required to ensure and to understand that any single person who talks to you is coming to it potentially with an agenda yeah. and also... Um, their own experiences. And also people are terrible witnesses. Sure. So what, very briefly, yeah. what was the process that you used to sort of do this, the, the first step, the first layer of review, the gut check, the corroboration? I get that you didn't rely as heavily on it. You did relied a lot on um, documents, on uh, public statements, on quarterly um, earnings reports, all of that. I'm talking specifically about the people you spoke to. What was it that you used? Was there a standard model that you used to corroborate what these people were saying or to vet them as sources? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't go to fancy journalism school. So I, if there's, if there are standard models for this, I'm not familiar with them, but I'll tell you what I, what I did. Each one is shaped by every journalist probably has their own version. Yeah. There are some like you know, general, I think guidelines and rules, but usually an editor is hopefully helping you with that process in a very touchy sort of, let's say magazine article or something like that. But 
what was the one that you developed and how did you ensure that you weren't getting, as you've been accused of, you know, having someone who really secretly was shorting the stock or something like that? Right. Right. So, I mean, first of all, right. You want to understand that the person you're talking to is telling the truth about the, the basics, right? So forget the specific controversial details. You know, they can tell you their story, then you can go online um, or into public documents and corroborate some of the, you know, how they're describing their uh, themselves, their relationship with the company, um, their experience there. Um, so you can do some just really basic corroboration there. And in fact, in general, as you mentioned, I really rely a lot on, on publicly available documents. And uh, that is as valuable a way to vet sources or at least uh, fact check them or, or get a sense of their uh, honesty um, as it is to come up with sort of angles or, or specific stories. Um, so, so there was that. I mean, I, I asked them. I, I would always, you know, I ask every source I talk to point blank, you know, what, what, what kind of conflicts do you have with, um, with the company, with Elon Musk specifically? Uh, sometimes you have to suss those out. Sometimes there are situations where there are sort of political battles inside of a company that kind of are more important even than the success or failure of the company. This actually happens a lot. And you have to understand those situations in order to understand the person's motivation. Um, and there's also been a bunch of reporting about this company. And, and I, have, I think a lot of journalists in the back of the book. And that's because they've done amazing work telling stories and, and, and talking. And so and I think the most important part though, is that again, you know, the important parts of the book are, are the broad patterns. It didn't just happen, you know, in one instance or even in a, a month or a year, but that over the 15 years or so of this company that have recurred again and again. And so for me, the real validation to sort of, you know, that, that tells me, okay, like I can go ahead and, and, and really, you know, pull out this theme is that you're hearing people talk about it um, from the beginning of the company, the middle of the company, and and to, to the present day. That that these themes are themes and relationships and dynamics are are things that are part have been part of this company for a long time. Yeah, and I, I'm gonna stop. I'm, I'm gonna stop you right now. Here we all right, Ed. Yeah. So we've been friends for a long time. Founded <laughs> a ton of cast together, uh, and no one would dispute that you're an amazing. Investigative reporter, but when I and I've read, I've read the book and I enjoyed it very much. Like eating a mountain of broccoli with sriracha <laughs> stuff. Broccoli right. is delicious. Okay. Actually, he added a little ranch dressing in there. There was some. Right. There was some mention of the citron, right? Citron, yeah, yeah. So, so and we'll get to that. So. When Ashley Vance or someone else writes a book about a guy or about a company, companies exist. If, if everything they do is terrible, they, they would just cease to exist. So this book is clearly – who is the audience for this book? Because if I had never driven a Tesla and I read this book, I would come away with saying, these things are pieces of junk. I'm not going near the company or, the, or their products. Huh. And, and, and also like potentially unsafe. I think that that is okay. – so, so Ed, uh, who is the audience for this book? Is what did you write it to deter people from investing in this company? No, no, no. I'm okay. So, I mean, it's important to acknowledge that, like as I mentioned earlier, that like two weeks after I decided to write this book, like Tesla attacked me and really, really, you know, 
aggressive terms. And so certainly when I started this book, um, it, I was, there was some anger. There was, I can't, I can't deny that. I mean, I'd been following the story for a while. I've been reporting for the story on the story for a year and a half or so at that point. And I was also frustrated by the fact that like stories that I thought were important, um, were not sort of getting wider play and that it was just sort of, you know, denied. Um, and so, yeah, at the beginning, but I think what happened and, and, you know, this was not a, um, I, I went into this with now, you know, no experience writing books and, and it was a learning experience. And one of the things that happened for me in taking so long to write it, um, and, you know, basically doing it on the weekends and stuff is it allowed me to process my feelings about it. And I feel like, you know, as that happened, um, you know, I was able to, to, you know, see, I think I saw them already, but accept and sort of bring together, um, the good along with the bad. And I, I, I see, I see what you're saying um, about someone might read this and think that you know, I'm trying to scare them off or anything or something. But like, no, I, I really, f- for me, um, and one of the things that's really frustrated me is this, you have to be a lover or a hater thing. This gets to your audience question. Um, I really don't like that because to me, when you love someone or something, like you have to be honest with it uh, or them, right? You have to be, and brutally honest sometimes, like the people who I have the closest relationship relationships with in life are people who call me out on my shit all the time. And I think, you know, this is a good example of that right here. You guys are being tough on me and rightly so, um, because this is your way of, of supporting me. Right. And so by the same token, my, my, my motivation in a lot of this stuff was sort of, Hey, you know, we need to learn from this and, and maybe it's too late for Tesla to learn from their mistakes. Maybe, well, and maybe well, it's not. I think the broader issue. Let's try to answer one question at a time. Well, then don't ask. Don't ask me five questions at a time. (laughs) One. Right. So, if Elon Musk or anyone inside Tesla were to read this book as a cautionary tale, okay, and Elon Musk were to mm, let's say learn from the lessons of the book, yeah. Would you stop writing about Tesla if tomorrow he began, you know, organizing his manufacturing line in a sane way? If he, as you suggested, should use an automotive grade screen in the car? If he was transparent about autopilot safety, would that suddenly make you cover something else as critically as you've covered Tesla? Uh, yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm very anxious to cover things other than Tesla, and I have always covered everything that I've focused on seriously. In a, in a tough, critical manner, because I think it's really important. I mentioned in the book that, you know, one of the reasons I, I started covering the Detroit automakers, and I was convinced very early on, and, and the website I wrote for at the time, like this was their core philosophy, was that, you know, part of what allowed these companies to decline over decades without really turning around is that the media was kind of bought and paid for. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have those tough voices saying, wait a second, you're screwing up. You got you to gotta turn this around. Um, and so... That, that's always been my goal. And frankly, you know, if, if my, I think the, the way to answer this is that if my criticisms had been, had been listened to and appreciated at the time, so 2015, 2016, especially, um, I think Tesla could have avoided a lot of really painful stuff that they're still going through, both on manufacturing, but also in service and, and customer experience and just the, the difference of, of addressing a mass market. And so to me, that's the, the frustrating part is that p- 
people say, oh, you were predicting that Tesla was going to die. I wasn't. I was warning them. I was saying, you can get away with some of these practices in this small volume, high profit market, but you're not going to when you get into the Model 3. And that's what's happening. And so I feel, I feel vindicated about that. So who is writing the book of equivalent, I guess, um, insight into, say, Dieselgate? Um, I, I don't know uh, offhand. I know that it's being done. I know that there was a really good documentary by uh, – it was on the, um, a Netflix show, The Dirty oh, yeah. Money. Uh, really good. Right. My colleague Bertel Schmidt was in that. Um, so I think, and I, you know, and I personally have written some tough stuff about Dieselgate. I don't think that Dieselgate is as important uh, a story for the future of the auto industry. And I think that's where why we get would to you, the, the issue I, of I'm like, going to jump. Can I? I'm just going to jump in. Whether they're really quick. Whether Tesla can learn from my criticisms or not, we all need to learn from them. Forget about Tesla, but because of the future of the auto industry, that's the main argument in the book is that this is an important test case and we have to learn, we have to see both the good that Tesla's brought and the bad in order to understand how and where like traditional auto companies and high tech companies are going to be able to come together. I'm going to, well, well, here's the thing. One thing you said sort of triggered this response, which is that I don't know if Tesla is the most important story in automotive and it's not, not to take anything away from your efforts, but I, I do think that blatant fraud by a company and attempts to by any company and attempts to hide it. And then the result of what occurs from that, which is whether it's fines or having to, um, you know, in Volkswagen's case, uh, you know, start an electric charging infrastructure company completely upend its entire business plan. Um, that's also probably one of the most important stories because when you, you think about it and it kind of supports your theory anyway, which is, how much impact would Tesla be able to take if it doesn't follow these manufacturing practices? And now a company that was accused of fraud and um, was lying about um, making claims about the emissions in its diesel vehicles, has, but yet is good at manufacturing, has had to completely upend and now as a result of it is about to dump millions of electric vehicles um, into the you know, industry globally in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, when I say that Tesla is the most important story in the world of automotive, I don't mean that um, if it were just me, if I were the only person in the world that I would necessarily think it was the most important. Dieselgate is clearly a very important story and there's a lot of really important lessons to learn there. And um, I, I'm looking forward to reading good books about, about that, that really goes into it. Um, however, you know, perception matters. And the perception that Tesla is the most important story in the world, uh, in the automotive world, um, kind of makes it true to some extent. And so um, that's a big part of why I think it is so important is because other people think it's important. And other people also, also one of the things um, that differentiates these two stories is that, you know, with Dieselgate, it's very interesting. And again, I look forward to in-depth reporting about sort of how this culture arose and how a company like that uh, got to you know be in the position that it that it ended up in, um, but I think you know it's also a fairly black and white story. And I think with Tesla, it is complicated. It's complex, and there are such starkly divided perspectives on this company that I think being able to understand where those crazily like fanboy perspectives come from, and also just the 
crazily, you know, negative and Tesla can do no right perspectives come from. I want to, I think that disconnect is what makes Tesla interesting and what makes, I think, hopefully a book like the one I tried to write important. Um, and I have to say the thing and, and, you know, reviews are only just coming in and, and we'll see what, what all they'll have to say. But one of the things that's really, uh, uh, validated me or made me feel good about the effort that I put into this project is that people do seem to think it's balanced. I'm going to disagree about the balance and I'll tell you why. Okay. Yeah. I cannot take issue with any uh, thing you've written in the book. I thought it was a wonderful book and I loved, I, lo- I loved reading it, especially the stories of the early roadsters being just total junk. But <laughs> Which, by the way, Elon has admitted to. But, you know, if I were writing such a book, I would... I would have, I guess I would have, I probably would have added something about, about how the fanboys, like what compels the fanboys? And there are sites like, I mean, Electric and Clean Technica undoubtedly will never review your book. As far as they're concerned, it doesn't exist because nothing um, in it is of relevance. Am I, am I, I think Clean Technica, uh, Jennifer Sensiba at, at Clean Technica is planning on reviewing it. And she said, it's not going to, this is just a tweet, but it's not going to please the worshipers or the blind haters, mm-hmm. but it's a good read for the rest of us. Like, that's what I was going for. Yeah. So someone who writes for Clean Technica sees that. So that, to me, like, I feel good about that. What I would like to see is your book paired with another book, which I'm not going to write. The other book would would delve into the psychology of the fanboys. Um and I think it runs very deep. I think like Dieselgate may be, if it wasn't for Dieselgate, Tesla wouldn't, have, the fanboys wouldn't be such fanboys because the resentment runs so deep towards OEMs yeah. that people are willing to overlook when a company like Tesla, as you point out in your book many times, commits all types of very aggressive, aggressive and occasionally deceptive, you know, uh, I don't want to say crimes, but acts. Here's my, Mm -hmm. here's my, here's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Do you, Ed, if, if we went back in time, would this, and you just like took all mention of the word Tesla out, could this be a similar storyline in in terms of missteps and deception in some cases and hubris for sure in a lot of cases to Ford or GM in the very, very earliest days in its first 10 years of existence? And it's not a criticism. I'm. It's. An, it's I'm just wondering if that. If that. What we're seeing here is unique in the time unique. period because of the time period, but actually is just if we went back in history a hundred years, we would have seen actually the same exact thing occurring. That's. A, it's actually an interesting point, Kirsten. Um. I. I don't think so. And I think part of it is that you know you can say well historical context aside, but you really everything is intertwined in its historical context. And, and part of what makes Tesla unique is that there hasn't been a startup car maker in 60, 70 years, right? Certainly not one that's been as uh, prominent as Tesla and, and arguably successful. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and I think just like the consumer market, the macroeconomic situation, all kinds of things make it, make it really different. And I think I do try and illustrate you know, in the piece that like one of the reasons and it kind of gets to what Alex was asking about the, the sort of mindset of fans. I think one of the really key factors that sort of explains partly that the phenomenon that is Tesla is that we live at a time where we worship new technology. Now, you could say that was the same at the turn of the century, but we have a specific way of approaching it now where we think of high technology 
um, you know, and, and information communication technology. And I think that Tesla has done a really good job of not just positioning itself as a company. So sort of their uh, corporate communications has positioned them as a tech company. Their product de- design and their product communication has positioned themselves as a device sort of tech company. Um, and I think that taps into our belief that, you know, uh, it's inevitable that what happened to phones is or, or personal computers, I guess, um, is going to happen to cars, that, that this is the smartphone of cars. And I talk about this pretty explicitly. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that I think it's a heuristics thing. People see Tesla, they see things, they're pattern matching. Well, Tesla is doing things that look similar to what Apple did with phones. Therefore, Tesla is inevitably the next Apple. And I think, you know, that, and, and so I use that to introduce the idea that like, hey, the car business and the phone and like electronic devices business are very different here. Like learn a little, let's learn about what the car business really is and why it's different than software or, or electronic devices. And I think that this context is really, it makes, it's what makes the story. I don't know the deep early history of Ford and GM in the same way because I wasn't alive at that time, you know, as I have focused on Tesla. But I would gamble that there's similar missteps. And and that leads me to my other question, which is, you know, I forgive me if I missed it, but I don't see a lot of mention of there were a number of others in the sort of clean tech clean tech bust and boom period um, that also tried to be like the next Tesla. And all that happened during that time failed and the ones that have tried since have failed. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I suppose it's a criticism, but it's also a question like, why didn't you then also do a fair comparison without spending a ton of time, but it is noticeable and it's worth at least a feather in Tesla's cap that it's able to survive when a number of other companies like Coda and Fisker and things like that did not. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I, I, and again, I, I want to make it really clear if you haven't read the book, like it, it's, I, it's not like I don't give Tesla any, any credit for anything. I see their design is amazing, but with their prototyping, their drivetrain engineering, a lot of things, but like specifically on the survival thing. Yeah, it, it does absolutely set them apart. And I do actually talk about this in the book. Um, I don't get into a lot of detail because none of the other companies compare really well, by the way, if you want to talk about other books, um, uh, insane mode by Hamish McKenzie, I think does a good job of both communicating the fanboy perspective. Um, and also talking about companies like Faraday future. Uh, and, uh, some of these other ones, uh, the Chinese ones in particular, actually some of the, I think the best reporting in that book is when he talks about the Chinese companies. Of course, he's also a former Tesla employee. Um, but, but but that's not a reason not to read it. It's a, it's a good book. And I think it makes a good counterpoint to mine because it does deal with some of these, these other issues. What I think the book does, my, uh, Ludacris does do is it shows why Tesla survived. And yeah, part of that is that their cars are just good, like really good. Right? And, and part of it is that they've touched on these cultural touchstones, right? But really, ultimately, and, and this you say there's a lot of finance you know, in the book, it's because you need to show. Why did they succeed? Mm-hmm. It's not because they've been making money. It's because they've been raising money. They've been able to get people to believe in them. And so if that's an intrinsic good, 
then okay, they're a, right. they're now, a you'll belief never company. Hear me. I, someone might call yeah. that a religion or something. But yeah. but when it comes to the business of making and selling cars, like they haven't survived longer than a lot of people expected because they were better at the business of building and selling cars than than people expected. They're just as bad as it at it as people expected. They're bet what they're better at is getting people to believe in the company and raising money. So Ed, I'm going to quote you. They make good cars, really good cars. <laughs> the, the, I mean, you can pull it. If you have the, the book in front of you, I actually don't have a copy in front of me. They're, I say I, nicer things about Tesla than that. No, like the actually, idea that you know I what? can't say anything good about them is is just not true. So, no, and you always get heated up when people make that like that comparison or that criticism. frustrating. Why do you not include a chapter devoted to your first drive of a Tesla? And <laughs> I'd like to know that. So part part of it is that you know the 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 stuff that Tesla has done well is really well documented. There are right Ashley Vance's book talks about it. Hamish McKenzie's book talks about it. You know, a million blog posts. Like like people, the Tesla fans are constantly trying to make it out. Like you know, the media only says bad things about it, but there are not only like reams through the years of of really just glowing and and and. Uh, undeservedly glowing coverage from the, from the mainstream media, but there's entire freaking media outlets that do nothing but, but talk about how great Tesla is. So like the idea that, you know, and so I personally, when I, you know, the whole balance thing gets brought up a lot and I think it's impossible. And maybe we have just different perspectives on this. I think it's impossible for any one person to really actually be balanced. Although Kirsten does come very close. Um, well, no, well, well, actually, what I'll I, say I think is you do. the balance thing that, no, 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 I, I'm just going to step in. I, I actually think the whole balance thing is, uh, a weird perversion. The the real true definition of what that is has become like a per- perversion of itself. The most important thing for a journalist to do is, and I've used this example when I've explained it to people, if you walk into a room, let's say a protest for something, and there are 2,000 people there to protest against something, and there's one person or 10 people there who are in support of it, and a newspaper article quotes one person from each side, that is not balanced because it doesn't provide the context of what the split was. Yeah. So balance should really be actually the most important thing isn't balance as much as context and in extreme accuracy and truth. Right. So if, you know, I mean, I don't know if Alex to like kind of not jump on your bandwagon on here. I don't know if a, a chapter on, why my first drive was so amazing would have been a good fit in this type of book anyway, but putting things in a context and, and, and understanding the whole picture of Tesla is important on either side, whether you're someone who wants to see them succeed or, or not, you know, that's, that's an important thing to do. And I think the book actually does that in a lot of places. I was surprised that I was surprised that I was pleasantly surprised that it did that. And I also think that some of the, in some of the cases, not that I didn't trust you, trust your ability to do it, but you never know how an end product is going to be, especially something you've been working on for two years. Um, but in the very beginning, especially the Roadster piece, in a way, and this is where it gets into the context part and the, what balance really should mean, they come off as positively scrappy in what they were able to yes. do with with the products that they initially started out with. Yep. Um, and it's kind of to no fault of their own, what they ended up with initially. Yep. Um, and, and I think that that was, that importantly sets the tone for the book. Yeah. Um, 
it isn't necessarily a, they didn't do, they were scrapping a positive way and it wasn't bad or good. It was like, here's the, here the hand we're dealt with. Let's do it. And that I think actually gave rise to this, the culture, Yes. unfortunately for them yes. in a way, <laughs> um, you know, as they became like uh, a higher volume producer. Yes. This is, this is, I mean, I think you've put your finger on exactly what I was really trying to do here is, right. People have been criticizing Tesla in very sort of harsh terms for a long time. And, and I've been part of that. Like I have, uh, criticized them, but I've, I've, uh, really tried to make it constructive. And I think what the book is doing is right. Just like people question my motivations for doing this stuff. Um, I was really wondering, you know, how did Tesla get to the point where things like funding secure could happen? How did Tesla get to the point where, you know, uh, things could be as divided and as extreme, where people could believe that they're going to take over the auto industry, but other people believe that they've done nothing but fraud. And I think that, you know, and I've said this on this show before, like, I think when you get to, uh, you know, full self-driving, I think that is that point, it is essentially, I, it's as close to fraud as I, you know, as you can as you can get, I think in that business. And, and I think the question is, you know, did they set out to do it to, uh, you know, to do that? Did they, did, were they trying to be bad exploitative people? No, absolutely not. I think that's the real lesson of the book. And I think it's something, it's a pattern that you see throughout history. Um, but also in, in, in cases where companies have ended up in fraud is that there's usually um, this, it's, I think of it as a, a Greek tragedy, right? Where you have a, a, a tragic flaw, and if a, a, a heroic, uh, a tragic hero has a characteristic, and a lot of times it'll be hubris, and it will, you know, inspire them to do something that no one else would do and allows them to achieve things that no one else could achieve. But that same hubris, they like once you get that success, it, it creates a dynamic that you can no longer control. And I think that's sort of when I started thinking about Tesla that way, that was when things really started to make sense and to fit together. And that was really the story. In fact, my, my original uh, subtitle to this was the tragedy of Tesla Motors, um, and I'm glad I went with unvarnished story because I tragedy, you know, it, it sounds too negative, and it's because people don't understand that the tragedy in the classical context is a much deeper, more complex thing. And I think that really is. I think Tesla is very tragic in a lot of ways. Uh, you say here that I like this chapter. The Empire Strikes Back uh, uh, starts with the story of Citroen and how Citroen was the front wheel drive company. They were so innovative, yada, yada. And they had to go bankrupt and they, they were acquired more than once, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, and so are you suggesting that Tesla is going to go the way of Citroen? No, I, I think, so I, I struggled with, with what examples to use. And I landed on the Citroen one because um, as I explained, they were, they had the blueprint of what cars were going to become, right? They were front wheel drive and stylish and sleek and, and, adaptive suspension, all this, all this amazing stuff that was the future. And the point was just to say that just having those pieces of the future early are not a guarantee of success in the car business. It doesn't mean Tesla is mm -hmm. definitely going to go under. It just shows that that's not enough. And I think what the book points at is these other things that Tesla also needs uh, in order to be successful. So, all right. So let's, let's talk, let's use the Citroen example. So as a former Citroen owner, I remember in the 80s, in the summer, going to Europe and driving a Citroen CX, which had, you know, the hydro suspension. And then the XM came out, 
And that was supposed to be the car of the future. And then subsequent generations have actually done away with the one thing that made Citroëns special, which was this hydropneumatic suspension. Today, I think that Citroëns done away with it altogether. So is it likely, in your opinion, that all of the innovations or all of the innovations that Tesla popularized will become ubiquitous and that the uh, and that Tesla, if it will just go away, except as a badge. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's incredible that in a, a mature product category like cars, that Tesla has been able to differentiate itself the way it has. And I think there are a lot of important lessons to that and, and what a sort of software, st- you know, startup style culture can bring to cars that, that the traditional industry isn't doing. And I think that's the part of Tesla that a lot of people like to talk about. So you think that you think the batteries and will become ubiquitous interfaces maybe, but the what OTA will go away the way that Citroen's hydrodynamic suspension went away, even though everything else was adopted. No, no, I think OTA is 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 here to stay as well. Um, no, I, I, it's it's not that specific, right? I'm not saying Tesla is Citroen. I'm saying that there is a fundamental lesson to be learned from Citroen and others, by the way, um, that show you know. Uh, just because you have the pieces that are going to make up the future doesn't guarantee anything in and of itself. Basically, there's no first mover advantage in cars, not a meaningful one. And you can go throughout the history of cars and you'll see that. So should should Musk have called the company Edison instead of <laughs> Tesla since Tesla himself was didn't, you know, did not become he did not see his technologies manifest as he would have wished. And Edison captured well, I mean, that. he's he's said that he is more of an Edison than a Tesla. Those are his, I'm mean, not his exact words, mm-hmm. but he said that. Um, so, uh, you know, and and I think Tesla just sounds awesome. So I know I don't I kept the name. And Edison is known to have been quite a jerk. Yeah, I mean, and Tesla is known to have been kind of a kook himself. I mean, you know, nobody's nobody's perfect, and I'm not. I don't feel like I'm holding Tesla up to the standard of perfection. I'm, in fact, you know, I think that. All of everything that I criticize Tesla about, if they were to just sort of focus on that and and work on that um, and find a balance between the unique, cool stuff that they brought to the business and the sort of less sexy, uh, less publicly understood stuff that I talk about in the book, um, you know, they would be a, a really successful automaker. Here's the one thing I I completely, you know, as someone who understands or knows. Uh, much of the history of automotive, but I do think that a lot of people will will be educated and learn a lot by understanding like the progression and and what Toyota's mark has been on the automotive industry. But even in the book, you give the example of you know Toyota himself, the grandson of you know I think it's Akio yep, Toyota, Akio yeah. Toyota, yeah, um, being concerned about the company, how what had happened with the culture, and then teaming up with yeah. Tesla. Now that didn't go very well, yep. but it gets got to the heart of what my biggest struggle is not with this book, but in terms of Tesla's story or what I think people want it to be everything. And I wonder, can it be the company that makes cars that people feel emotion for and, uh, and also be the company that makes the boring widget? Yeah. I don't know if it can be both. And, and the thing is we have lots of boring cars out there already. Yep. So like, is it unfair to ask, um, for putting aside like some of the crazy, um, ridiculous practices the company has has done, just talking strictly about 
how it's very good at design and prototyping and kind of bad at volume manufacturing or it's it's definitely problematic yeah is it unfair to ask for it to be both yeah no i I don't think i'm asking for them to be both um i think they've imposed that on themselves and i think that's where you know there's a a really important sort of auto industry technology story that is, is important to understand because it'll shape the future but there's also a very human aspect to this story and i think that that's um you know where the hubris really comes from with this company and and I think, you know, uh, as, I, t- as I, I tell the story in the book of where sort of the, the top secret master plan came from, um, and it, to me, it seems very clearly to be tied to Elon Musk's desire to really be seen as the mastermind of Tesla and, and this sort of messianic figure that's changing the world and making it better. Um, and I think that that's what's driven them into uh, the mass market where they're not really well Right, and they had a choice. They did fundamentally have a choice of: Do we want to be at the cutting edge of technology with the highest performance cars and pushing the envelope? Uh, if so, you know, be a small volume, you know, high end premiums. You know, raise your prices, don't lower them. But some of that big thinking, you know, this is the part where I defend Tesla. The part where the, the, some of that big think, thinking and hubris has allowed them. I mean, sometimes people who make the biggest bets and like either fail miserably or you know. Become uh, what ha- will define the society at that moment is is ego and confidence and like going big or going home. Yeah. And so I wonder, you know, as um, problematic as Elon's behavior has been at times, I wonder what would Tesla have been if it if it wasn't led by someone like that. It might be a lot better place to work culturally and. And it also might not, it might exist, not exist anymore. anymore or though. it could have done a boring product, product, right? And I think that was part of the reason of telling the story in, you know, sort of with focus that I did is it's not be like, you know, Tesla's bad or Tesla is fraudulent. It's that like, look, they got into this business that's, that's really hard. They didn't understand and they've continued to not fully understand how hard some of the things they've been trying to do are. Uh, and they've been really good at raising money, but when they run out of money, they have to do these things that a lot of people think are very shady. Um, and they, you know, I wanted to show that they did that because of the situations they got into, not because they set out to do bad or deceptive or fraudulent, fraudulent things. The tragedy of this is that Tesla had an enormous impact. They've arguably, and, and this, this is, I think about it as their mission has already succeeded, even though the top secret master plan failed. Right, they they really did not follow their 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 secret master plan or whatever, right? But they still succeeded. They succeeded in changing perceptions and changing the market and changing the industry, just selling small volumes of high end cars. And they didn't need to take that other step into this area that they weren't prepared for and didn't have the wherewithal to really like reboot their culture for. Let's do a speed round of questioning, Alex. I'm going to go first, and then and then you can go. What are just you know, one word answers here. What are like the handful, three maybe, biggest risks facing Tesla right now for its future? Like it can be three, three words. Area. Full self driving. Well, well, okay, so full self driving. You don't think that solar and its energy storage business or its pursuit to be a energy sustainable energy company will is a problem? No, I mean that's become such a small part of their business. I think I think their credibility got hurt really badly by doing the Solar City bailout, which they again they didn't need to do. The definition of tragedy is like doing 
crummy or questionable things that you didn't actually have to do. And uh, yeah, so, but no, I think the solar part, it's just a tiny part of their business, which is why I really, I felt okay writing this book. And I called it, by the way, Tesla Motors, because I wanted to only write about the car part. And frankly, that's, you know, 90, whatever percent of their revenue. So yeah, no, I, I think that's inconsequential. It's, it's, a, it's a branding thing. So I haven't done the numbers. I'm, I'm asked, I guess maybe Ed has or you, Kirsten. What if, I mean, what if Tesla stopped trying to sell full or stopped offering the full self-driving capability package? Just stopped offering it. Could they survive? Can they survive if they keep it? I don't know. I mean, gaming out how that's going to play out, we have no precedent for it. There's no rule book. Um, and so it's really hard to say, you know, because the key question is how much are the owners going to take? People have put down the money. At what point do they get pissed off? I don't know. I can't, that's a human psychology question that I'm really not equipped to answer. Did, wasn't there already a class action suit brought by the first customers who paid for FSD? Was, I'm sure there have been a and, few. I mean, it was a, uh, the enhanced autopilot one, it was about them missing the deadlines on that. And I actually lost track of that lawsuit. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, it certainly hasn't been definitively tried. Hmm. Interesting. Why don't you think, um, I, your whole section where you talk about, um, what is disruption and what is not disruption? Is that the chapter 17? Um, oh, that's the one with the Citroen in it. Yep. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and I, I took issue to that a little bit. Um, and I'm wondering why, I mean, you explain it a little bit in the book, but I mean, you, you set out what the difference is in the definition, but how can you look at um, what Tesla has done in terms of battery technology and also it, even comparing it to Nissan, how is that not disruptive? Because it, the disruption means a specific thing. It doesn't mean, you know, we, we've taken disruption to mean, you know, well, it's changed things or it's good, but it's, there's, a, there's a specific definition. I lay that out in the book and, and it doesn't take anything away from Tesla to say they're not disruptive. They just aren't. They don't fit that definition. I think the way you can tell is that you have car companies putting out things like the e-tron and the, and the, um, it's a sustaining innovation. And also, by the way, like something that really doesn't get talked about. But they're not, but they're still not. Just to cut you off a little bit on that, that e-tron mentioned, you still though have companies that are, have long histories of manufacturing, putting out vehicles that still aren't reaching the capabilities in terms of range and some of the other important specs that has nothing that- to do with ma- with manufacturing, and and I think you know we discussed this with Horace Didieu when he was on the show. Um, this this sort of broader question, and and my feeling is is that right, like competition is asymmetrical, and the fans can say you know well you know they don't beat you know whatever you know quote unquote Tesla killer X or Y does not beat Tesla on the three things that Tesla is best at. Well, yeah, like. Of course, the Lexus LS, when it came out, it wasn't trying to be 20% better than the, the S class at everything. It was offering, you know, somewhere between 80 and 100% of what the S class offered at a lower price and with much better reliability and customer experience. I think it's a similar thing here. That's the smart way to compete with Tesla is not to try and be faster. They're at the limit of, or quicker, the limit of tire grip anyway. Uh, range. I mean, you have to have the reason Tesla is expensive is because they just throw so many batteries at it. That's not a viable solution. Um, and, and so I think, you know, f- and, and ultimately as consumers, there may be trends 
you know, periods of trends where we're excited most by pushing the envelope. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of people are okay not pushing the envelope if it means that it just works all the time. And I really, I reiterate, I really enjoyed the book and it really helps me have conversations about Tesla. In addition to my liking the company, these stories are just wonderful stories. But I have to ask, are you this way about everything in life? Is there anything you actually enjoy and like that you feel so strongly about in a positive way as you brought to this story? I mean, uh, I... Are you just a nudge? <laughs> I, I look, I, my experience as a journalist was forged in 2008. That's why I talk about it in the book. It's that I think it is important. And like I said before, it's, you know, that situation, it wasn't just the unions. It wasn't just the management. It wasn't just the culture of these companies. There's a lot of things that were all part of it. But one big part that doesn't get talked about is the fact that the media that were supposed to be covering these companies just, you know, were like every, every year at Motor Trend, the cover would be like, oh, Detroit fights back, you know, Detroit's new thing. And, and it's going to be the thing that turns it around for Detroit. And it never did. And it never did. And never did. It's because they were positive and positive and positive and hoping for the best. And, Never got it. And and I think you you people and are a bunch of knee pad wearing shills. <laughs> Those are your words. Um, no, and I don't mean to just pick up motor trend they're not even the whole problem. It's, it's, you know, the, the entire media and you can look at the Detroit based, you know, media in particular too. There's, there's this tendency when you cover an industry to get close to them because you get access and you're friendly and you can go in the junkets and there's this whole thing. But what doesn't happen is you as a journalist then cease to provide the value, right? Your value as a journalist is not to inspire people. It's to say, hey, this might not work out. Hey, there might be problems ahead. Hey, there might be issues. And to me, that is incredibly satisfying. It's again, again, it's not a positive or negative thing. I don't see that as being negative. I think it's deeply positive to say, Look, for all the good that you've done, there are these problems coming up. And maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong about some of them for sure. Right. But like, I don't think I, it's really important to me that like pointing those things out is not me being negative. It comes from a place of, right. If I don't care, if I want you to fail, am I going to point out the things that I think are real problems that, that you have a chance to solve, by the way? And again, maybe now I don't know if it's too late or not. But when I started talking about this stuff, Tesla had the chance to avoid production hell and now and now service hell right i'm not saying if they just listened to me that would have been enough there's a lot more to it than that but i was pointing out these problems that are now coming to be and 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 one of the biggest problems that i do really am hard on on tesla about is their defensive culture of treating every little bit of criticism as if it's some end of the world someone trying to destroy them that's not how relationships work okay so um what about this though one of the companies that you hold up as an example of doing things correctly is Toyota. And I know that you've gotten criticism on Twitter and stuff as being like, you know, a fanboy of Toyota. So I'll flip it on you on that. Has Toyota, in your view, from what, you know, as someone who's been in their factories, right, and you really understand the company, do they do anything that you think is wrong in terms of like, not this is good versus evil, but, but that is potentially problematic for them as a company. Can you even find, can you find something within the company that, of course, okay, what they're the, they're the, they're the flip side of Tesla, right? Where they, they do the fundamentals really, really well. But when it comes to pushing 
uh, technology in particular, they struggle because they're so conservative. And the point of the book is not to say Tesla is bad and Toyota is good. It's to show that over time, Toyota became Toyota by being Toyota, right? Uh, they didn't get there by pushing the envelope on technology. And that tells you something about both the business of making cars, but also about the market for cars. doesn't mean that nobody likes to have uh, to be pushing the envelope in technology in their cars, even if it means some bugs and some problems. There are people who like that. That's just not the majority of people. And if Tesla wants to get into that mass market, then they, you know, that's something they really need to be aware of and to own. So yeah, Toyota is, and, and I say this, I do I say this explicitly in the book. Toyota got to be Toyota by not having the sexiest cars, by not having the highest tech cars, by not having the most high performance cars. They got there in spite of all of those things. And that's why it's important to understand this, is they're the flip side. It's not Tesla bad, Toyota good. They're just two sides of the same coin, two extremes. And I think if you take the books, you know, seriously, you know, again, I think the message goes beyond Tesla. It's about what is this future that we're going towards, right? Who's going to shape it and what's it going to look like? And I think that the, the real message of the story is, is that you need both. You need the Teslas and you need the Toyotas, but more importantly, you need both of them to overcome the arrogance on both sides and the set in their waysness of both sides and, and to be able to appreciate what the other one brings to the table and come together. And I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest turning points, one of the handful of top turning points in Tesla's history is the fact that they weren't able to make a relationship with Toyota work. Because if they understood the business they were getting into, would be getting into, they would have looked at Toyota and said, these guys, they need us and we need them. And we need to make this relationship work. And that didn't happen. Okay, Alex, I think I'm going to let you have the final question. Well, I don't know if it's as much a question as as much as uh, Ed. Do you think that Tesla will survive as an independent company <sighs> on a twenty four month or call it thirty six month timeline? I mean, in your book, you talk, well, actually refer, let me turn this rephrase this. In your book, you talk about how Ford and Tesla the only American car companies not to file for bankruptcy. And the reason Ford was- This is an explosive nugget that I just dug yeah. up, you know. Right. And, and the reason Ford was able to do that is because they planned yeah. for what a recession, what a recession-proof business should look like. And you've made it quite clear that you do not believe Tesla's plan for it. As we record this episode, the there are some- indicators that the United States may enter into a recession. So let's assume it does. Yeah. Tesla will have to file for bankruptcy, right? And then be acquired, right? I mean, who yeah. buys Tesla? <laughs> we discussed this before, right? Uh, you know, again, because there are two very different sides of, or ways of looking at Tesla, right? There could be some billionaire in China who's waiting for Tesla to go into bankruptcy so they can swoop it in because they love the brand and or Saudi Arabia or who knows where, right? Um, and they may buy it for reasons other than that they think they can really turn it into a sustainable business. Or maybe someone does buy it and they say, you know what, we're going to you know, drop the Model 3, only have super high performance versions of that. Cheapest Tesla you can buy is going to be $60,000, $70,000. And we're going to just have special editions and track editions and, and we're going to go up market, right? Or you know, a, an established auto company says this would fit, we could make this fit into our company. I do agree though, Alex, that they do have to go bankrupt for that to happen because I think there are too many encumbrances on the business right now. So if for some reason, if, if the United States is not entering into a recession, 
what is the scenario where Tesla becomes profitable? Is there any scenario in your mind? Full self-driving capability aside, because yeah. even I love Tesla, do not believe that that can save them. Yeah. So is there another way that Tesla can invert and become a profitable company? Has anyone asked uh, what that would look like? Yeah. So so I think what it would look like is as a small volume. They're like, we're, we're only going to be Silicon Valley Ferrari from now on. And we're not going to build more than maybe one or 200,000 uh, one or 200,000 cars a year, maybe 300,000 globally, something like that. They really only need the one factory, although that does create trade war risks. Um, but I think that that small volume, high margin, just based on where the culture is, you can, you can start new business lines in a year or two or, or even four or five. But um, what you can't do is turn around your culture, even in four or five years, that takes a long time. And so if we take culture as a given, and that if they've been the same clip, they had the same culture for 15 years, you know, they're not likely to be able to change that within less than 10. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, but, but unlikely. Uh, to me, that means they have to become a, a small volume, uh, premium, high margin brand. Maybe they can do that independently. They definitely can do that um, as part of a broader company uh, because that gives them access to part bins and suppliers and manufacturing techniques, and all kinds of other things that just plug in all these gaps. So I think, yeah, if if you want to, if you love Tesla and you want to see it survive, frankly, I think, you know, having it merge, especially now while the value is high, you know, get out there, sell it or or merge it uh, with with another car company so that these these weaknesses can be filled in and the strengths can can be accentuated. Um, that's that's the way to make it work. Which could kill the brand if it's not if if the best parts of the culture aren't maintained. The worst parts of the culture get tossed out, but the best parts of the culture, which is, you know, it's why, you know, Alex and I just were both happened to be at Monterey Car Week and some of the vehicles there, what, why people spend millions of dollars in some of these vehicles is because that, that name evokes an emotion and a very specific, you know, lifestyle and people are super passionate about it. And and you weren't looking at Toyota Camrys, no, were you? No, we were at Monterey Car Week. Just a no. wild guess. But, but, there, but yeah, there, exactly. are, there are low-cost cars that evoke the same type of you know, emotion and following, but maybe not to that level. Uh. Um, so kind of what you're talking about is sort of like what, you know, maybe what Porsche is. Is, you know, it's yep. what, globally like 250000 ish a year. Yep. Um, and it has a very specific lineage and culture and history. Brand, yeah, and brand, yeah. No, I and and again, this is something you have said for a while. And and frankly, I think this is if I'm critical of anyone in this book, like like really critical. It's even it's no, it's well, it's <laughs> actually Alex. Now uh, it's less the company itself because the company responds to the stimuli and the and the incentives that are out there. Frankly, I think the the people who have done the worst for Tesla. Um, or the words by Tesla are the most extreme fans, the ones who say they have to take over everything, that they have to sell millions of cars a year, that they have to, right? I think a lot of that comes from investing in the stock and wanting to see Tesla become the Google of cars or whatever. And I think a lot of it just comes from just naive fanboyishness. And I think the problem is, is that Tesla has been able to play into those beliefs uh, to their own profit, right? Because their business is raising money, not earning money. Um, they by fostering those those fans and, and that fan culture, you know, they've been able to do what they need to do, which is raise money, but it's held them back from really getting onto a sustainable basis. And so frankly, I think the 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 fan 
extreme aspects of the fan culture are really the most toxic part of Tesla because it, it, it's what paints them into the corner, right? That's why full self-driving exists. If these were just normal consumers, they'd be like, that sounds like a cool plan and I'll pay you when you can, when you have it, right? But only Tesla fans would say, yeah, we'll give you thousands of dollars now, $9,000 right now for basically, you know, ADAS. And then someday you're going to deliver self-driving. Like that crazy culture has has allowed Tesla or, or incentivized Tesla to paint itself into these corners that it's, it's having an extremely hard time getting out of. And so, if I'm, a, I'm critical of anyone, it's it's them. All right, so we should we should wrap this up. Um, Alex's favorite line. Wrap. Yeah. Okay. So fi- final question. Uh, so final question, and then we are leaving. Will you be writing an addendum to this book in five years, or will you ever write another book? <laughs> well, if you'd asked me this a couple months ago, <laughs> I would have easily said B. Uh, never writing another book again. Um, it's been a it's been a tough experience, and um, I'm not super anxious to repeat it. But I have also learned a lot from it. Um, and I don't think. And one of one of the things that made it really hard is that the story wasn't over. Um, it's hard to write a narrative arc if you don't know what the end state is, right? And I tried to write it in a way that no matter what happens with Tesla, the book will still be worth reading. Um, and I hope I accomplished that. Well, you could be like Michael Lewis. He wrote Liar's Poker. And then 25 yeah. years later, he wrote The Big Short. So yeah. maybe that's what it will be. So, I, yeah. And I, I want to see what, you know, what Tim Higgins, like, I'm really looking forward to his book. I'm sure it'll be great because he's just really good at what he does. Um, but uh, if in a couple of years, uh, the story has progressed a lot, um, I am certainly open to writing. I, I think the story's not over. And I would like to at some point. You know, if there's an end to the story, I'd like to to take, pick up where this book left off and, and and write the ending to it. And I think that could be a, a really interesting, challenging project too. Edward, where can we learn more about you on the internet? What's your social media handle? <laughs> I I'm at twitter.com slash tweetermeyer. Uh, you can also find me at the Drive, uh, where I'm the uh, senior editor for mobility technology. Uh, there will also what? be a website called ludicrousthebook.com, but it's not uh, up yet. So um, we're working on that. And, and when, when that does go up, you'll be able to see all of the documents that I FOIA'd, uh, all my sources. Not all, you won't be able to see all my sources, but you'll be able to see all my citations, um, things like that, uh, as well as the kind words from those, those people who have had kind words to say about it. And uh, what would be the optimal outlet at which to buy this book to benefit the author? Um, you know what? Buy it, buy it wherever you want. Um, I will be uh, posting on Twitter uh, about events uh, when I do have some lined up that will be open to the public. Right now, we just have a couple of private ones, um, but I do really want to get out there and and, and you know share this with the public and, and get feedback, uh, especially if I'm going to write another one. So um, follow my Twitter. Uh, if there's an event to uh, to to get a book for me in person and, and sign it for you, I would I would love to be able to do that. And uh, uh, if you see me and I'm in your in your neighborhood, um, you know. Don't ask me. Oh, yeah. Don't <laughs> Come talk to me about it. I actually like talking about Tesla. Unlike, unlike Kirsten. Kirsten, where can we follow you and your work? Oh, please. This is tired. Everyone knows where to find me. TechCrunch, Twitter. Don't stalk me too hard. Alex, we know where to find you too. Well, stand by. I can be reached on all platforms at AlexRoy144. But most importantly, if you would like to follow more of the stories that you hear about in the Atonicast, please go to atonicast.com and sign up for our mailing list. 
um, so we can share with you more of our adventures in the near future. Please do. Thank you, guys. This has been a lot of fun. I love I love getting grilled by you guys. Yeah, I, I don't think it was very much fun. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed. Was there really a grilling though? I mean, uh, was that was that you going easy on me? You wouldn't even let us get a word in. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed the book, but if you had to sum up my review, this is a wonderful book. And hashtag no one cares. The cards are great. <laughs> I, I don't, Alex. I don't. I just don't understand why you have to be so negative. Yeah, I'm so so. Negative. I know I really enjoyed the book. I discussed it with many people over the weekend, including some people who may or may not work for a major car company, um, building EVs. But that's another story. Until next week, guys and gals. <laughs>